Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This show is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. You may be wondering, what do brown sauce, ska, and walking trails all have in common? Well, they are all things that made England. At least they are according to the listeners of the podcast, The Things That Made England. Join hosts David Crowther of The History of England, Royfield Brown of Dumpty Dum, and Luke Baxter of Intelligent Speech, as in each episode, one of the hosts proposes a thing that made England and presents arguments for it. The hosts then debate its merits and leave it to the audience to vote on whether or not it is a thing that made England. It's a fun time, good chat interesting conversation, and the Facebook group is a lot of fun to participate in. So check them out. They are the Things That Made England podcast, a member of the Agora Podcast Network. Every episode, we recognize those donors and patrons whose contributions to the show keep the lights on and keep me doing this. This month, we start out with Michael, who shall be known from henceforward as Earl Michael, the Jackalope Knight. Next up, we have Carl, whose worthy deeds for the kingdom have earned him the rank of Viscount Carl, Comer of the Royal Show Ferrets. Up next, we have Patron David, who shall be known henceforward as Father David, Grand High Inquisitor of the Gardening Staff. Congratulations, David. And lastly, but not leastly, we have Shelley, who shall be known henceforward as Abbess Shelley, Doomsayer of the 10th Annual Royal Ferret Fancy Show and Potluck Brunch. Congratulations to all of our donors and patrons whose contributions have joined them to the surried ranks of those who support the show. If you would like to join them, head over to the website, wittenberg westphaliapodcastweeblycom and go to the support page. There are a variety of levels. I'm working on it. Speaking of, I, I had the aristocracy of the mind thing since the fall. I've tried to do it once and it didn't work. And then my time kind of got swallowed by intelligent speech, which is also why this episode is late. I want to apologize to everybody. That said, I sort of regret nothing because intelligent speech was awesome and you guys should really come next year. It is a great time. That said, I will be trying to get the aristocracy of the mind video meeting going again soon. It's also worth saying that we basically haven't had childcare this summer. We've been through four babysitters, and I'm losing my mind. So, in any case, thank you to everybody who donated and supported, and has continued to donate and support. Anyone who had been in the aristocracy of the mind level and has stopped, I understand. You'll still be invited, and then you can decide whether you want to come to the next one or not after that. Definitely understand 
where you're coming from with that. Anyway, if you want another way to support the show, you can always rate and review us on whatever podcatching app you use. And that's always very appreciated. It helps us people find the show. And of course, you can head over to the website, wittenberg to westphaliapodcastweeblycom and buy merch. I'm thinking of adding some new stuff because it's been up for about a year. Thank you to everybody who bought stuff already. That's been fun. It hasn't paid the costs of hosting, but that's okay. I'm doing it for fun anyway. Let's get on with the show. But in the following year, the same castle was taken by the pagans through craft, and many of our men who were in it were killed by them. Disturbed by this, the emperor again came with troops to the Elba River, but since the pagans prevented the crossing, the emperor sent part of the army across undercover through another ford in the river. When the enemies had been set to flight that way, Emperor Conrad entered the region by the now free bank of the river and laid them so low with immense devastations and burnings everywhere except in the impregnable places that afterward they paid to him the tax which had been imposed by emperors of old and which was now increased. For both before and at the time, Emperor Conrad toiled greatly amidst the nation of the Slavs. Because of this, one of us composed a short account in verse, which afterwards he presented to the emperor. There, one may read how the emperor sometimes stood in marshes up to the thighs, fighting in person and exhorting the soldiers to fight, and how, after the pagans had been conquered, he slew them with a greater ferocity because of a certain reprehensible superstition of theirs. For it is said that at some time the pagans kept a wooden effigy of our crucified Lord Jesus Christ in shameful mockery and spat upon it and struck it with blows. Finally, they tore out the eyes and cut off the hands and feet. To avenge these deeds, the emperor, in a similar manner, mutilated a great multitude of captured pagans for one effigy of Christ and destroyed them with various deaths. Therefore, Caesar is called an avenger of the faith in these verses and is compared with the Roman princes Titus and Vespasian, who, in avenging the Lord, had exchanged thirty Jews for one coin, since the Jews sold Christ for that many denarii. From Whippo's Deeds of Conrad II Quote read by Josh Zucker of the Grand Dukes of the West podcast. As it happens, the Grand Dukes of the West podcast is a podcast about the history of Burgundy, which is very interesting in terms of our topic and has been sort of coming in and out of our show basically from the beginning. And it's actually going to be in this episode as well. So I thought it was a great time to highlight Josh's show. You should all probably go give it a listen. But, you know, after this, let's let's have the music. Sharks and the jets to the call in the morning. Greetings! My name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the wars of the Reformation. This is episode 85 Conrad the Salty and Son. One of the overriding themes of this show has become my lack of ability to handle numbers. They hit my brain like newspaper ink hit silly putty, leaving an impression at first, but not exactly reliable. Last time out, I said we had three dynasties to cover before Henry IV, but it turns out it was two dynasties and my brain doesn't work. To put that another way, last time out, we covered the Etonian dynasty from Otto the Great to Henry II. 
Over the course of those four kings, we saw that the empire Otto had built was more than just the personality of one man, but a sustainable political entity based on a three-way alliance of the monarchs, the church, and the major aristocrats. This structure survived two major succession crises, the first being the inheritance of the empire by Otto III, who was a child under the regency of a woman, and the second being the death of the same Otto without any children, leading to the succession of Henry II. Despite situations that usually ripped apart the actual Roman Empire with civil wars, the emperors of the Germanic Roman Empire were able to retain a relatively centralized government. While civil conflict happened, they were contained battles between aristocrats and did not seriously endanger the polity as a whole. The emperors remained strongly in control, battling with the Slavs and Eastern Romans despite some major setbacks, and even having a major hand in forcing ecclesiastical reform on the papacy an institution that had lost its way in the view of many at the time and since. The strong hand of the Germanic Roman emperors pushed numerous reformist bishops onto the chair of St. Peter, who had been educated in the increasingly widespread Cluniac reform movement. By the death of Henry II, the empire had faced major setbacks on its eastern and southern borders, but the emperor had never been stronger internally, and the feudal political system seemed to be fully and convincingly yoked to the empire's cart. Despite this strength, there were issues. The traditional homeland and heartland of the Etonian Empire, Saxony, was increasingly estranged from the monarchy. Not that they had any kind of blood feud, but it was increasingly felt that all practical ties between the kings and their supposed homeland had decayed. The Saxons somewhat defensively claimed that they felt like any other duchy under the king. The fact that many of the local appointments had been made to Etonian family members, and we are now in the Salian dynasty, is a not inconsiderable part of this thing. Meanwhile, the bishops had begun to accumulate a huge amount of secular political power, being granted political rule over the equivalent of whole counties in their dioceses, which is something that blurred the lines between the aristocrats and church officials. The second and third autos also spilled a whole lot of blood for a little practical return in southern Italy, while Henry II fought a seemingly unending war against Poland that ended after decades with almost no practical change in the borders. Today we will examine the first two emperors of the so-called Salian dynasty, Conrad II and Henry III. These men are the key lead-ins for our narrative of the investiture controversy between Henry IV and Pope Gregory VII. However, before we get to that, we will need to go back to the papal side of the world and run through what has been happening in Rome in some more detail. Then we will be ready for the controversy itself and all that follows, but today we are talking about Conrad II and Henry III. So, we left off our narrative last time with the death of Henry II. I mentioned at the time that there is some discussion in the historiography about the whys and wherefores of the circumstances surrounding the event. The chroniclers of the time, all fully paid-up members of the Henry II Propaganda Union, Local 23, said that Henry and his wife were simply too holy to give in to their lusty desires, and never had any children as a result. Modern historians suggest the couple may just have been unable to have kids as a result of physical ailments or what have you. At this distance, it's really impossible to say. It's arguable that it was a combination of both. Regardless, the end result was that Henry and his wife, St. Cunigund of Luxembourg, did not have kids. And, as you will recall from last time, Henry himself was chosen as king basically because there was no one else with a strong claim to the throne at that point, despite the fact that most members of the nobility hated him and his branch of the royal family. So him dying without kids now made things... complicated. 
For most of the Etonian dynasty and the Carolingian dynasty and everything in between and before, the process of selecting a king used the mechanism of a diet, which was kind of something between a royal court and a parliament. There would be elections there and ultimately a series of coronations by the church and a forceful tour of the kingdom to solidify a king's newfound kingship. But for the Etonians, a lot of this was ceremonial. Otto I had put a lot of effort into the ceremony of these things, rather than their actual, like, constitutional functionality. The main emphasis was actually on the tour of the kingdom, in which any recalcitrants would have the opportunity to fall in line or face the music. But after the death of Otto III, and now with the death of Henry II, the Diet had a real practical role. I kind of skimmed past it last time, but to understand what happens with the death of Henry II in this new Diet that is convened to pick his successor, we're going to need to go back to Otto III. At that time, you may remember that there was a guy bopping around called Otto III of Worms. This was a different Otto III from the king, and to be honest, I basically soft-pedaled him at the time because the names were too confusing. This was a mistake, because it's family tree time. Otto Not the King was the son of a guy you may have heard of. He was the son of none other than Conrad the Red. For those who don't remember, Conrad the Red was the tragic hero knight of the Battle of Leshfield, who, despite a strained friendship with Otto, sacrificed himself in the key moment of the battle to defeat the horrible pagan Magyars and defend not only the good people of Germany, but Christianity itself. This, at least, is the story told by the chroniclers. You'll see in a bit why the story might not be totally on the up and up, but for now suffice it to say that Conrad the Red was the grandson of Conrad I the king of the Eastern Franks who had given the kingship to Henry the Fowler, father of Otto I. Thus, this family had a lot of importance to the kingdom. Conrad the Red himself married Otto I's daughter, which makes Otto of Worms, the Otto in question that we're trying to talk about, the grandson of Otto I, and was in direct senior male line of succession from Conrad I, the earlier emperor. So, Otto of Worms was deeply associated with the throne, but in a bunch of ways that meant he didn't have a direct claim when Otto II and Otto III were alive. With Otto the Great, Otto I being who he was, clearly that was the senior line, that's where everything was going. But when Otto III died, Otto of Worms had at least as good a claim as Henry of Bavaria. Additionally, these two had been locked in a three-way dispute over who would rule several territories in southern Germany, along with Hermann of Swabia, the guy that did end up rebelling in the last episode. As far as I can tell, Hermann was a cousin of Otto of Worms, but in any case, Hermann and Henry's families had been disputing over the rule of Corinthia for two or so generations when Otto III, the emperor, came to the throne, and his solution to this dispute between two of his nobles was to bring in Otto of Worms, some third guy who also had a major claim to the throne, and put him in charge instead. Henry of Bavaria, which is to say Henry II, did eventually get it back, but when Otto III died, everyone had a problem. As it turned out, the three realistic candidates for the throne were now Otto of Worms, Henry of Bavaria, and Hermann of Swabia, and they all basically had a history of hating each other and fighting. Isn't that the way? Now, that said, at this point, Otto of Worms was pretty old, and he'd spent his entire life as an extremely loyal servant of the Etonian dynasty. He just does not seem like he was the kind of person, temperamentally, to fight tooth and nail for the throne. So during the negotiations leading up to the Diet, Otto of Worms just withdrew from the race in favor of Henry of Bavaria. He did this in return for having his ownership of Corinthia confirmed. This left Hermann of Swabia neither getting the kingship nor the rule of Corinthia, 
And so he went into revolt, and a short but violent civil war was required to bring him to heel, as you will recall. Now, things get more complicated in terms of Otto of Worms' family, and I'm going to skip it because it just is ridiculous and everyone has the same name. But suffice it to say that Otto of Worms' grandson, Conrad, ended up ruling the family lands after some twists and turns in the family tree, but in the process, Carinthia was taken away again by Henry II, so the family that Conrad was raised to lead was in a somewhat awkward position. Technically, Conrad was not the duke of anything, which made him not quite a contender in the imperial aristocracy. That said, they directly owned lands all over southern and western Germany, with their main power base being in the old Conrad and Heartland of Franconia, which is to say that part of Germany along the central Rhine region. Between these lands and their relatively strong claim to the throne under the circumstances, the relationship between little Conrad and Henry II was fraught and became increasingly strained. With Carinthia and other hands, Henry would not give Conrad any other duchies or let him use a ducal title, so little Conrad felt kind of constrained, but Henry was viewing him as a threat. Podcast footnote. What should we be calling little Conrad's family here? Modern historians kind of switch around a lot, with Conradins being the most popular designation for obvious reasons between Conrad the Red and this little Conrad who's going to be important. I suppose that's not spoiling anything. It's not like we're going to call them the Red Fellows or the descendants of Otto, not the king. But in the 12th century, chroniclers were very clear on what they were called. They were the salient family. And the reasons are the kind of weird that makes you not want to trust anything written in the Middle Ages. The first thing to know is that back in the old days at the fall of the Roman Empire, there were two kinds of Franks. The Salic Franks, who lived near the mouths of the Rhine where the water was salty, or saline, and the Riparian Franks, who lived upriver, in a riparian region. Now you might think that the Salian family got their link from owning lands in the Salic region, but no, they owned lands in Franconia, which was the riparian region. The real reason for all of this weirdness is that little Conrad had a personal biographer that he paid, Wipo of Burgundy. Wipo's biography of Conrad went out of its way to construct a wild genealogy for the Franks, in which exiles from Troy settled amongst the Salic Franks, where they became the ancestors of the Merovingian dynasty, which predated Charlemagne. The Merovingians were not well regarded for much, except that one of them, Clovis, was the one who converted the Franks to Catholicism, and who also wrote out a law code which was still a reference point in the time of little Conrad. Whenever you needed to refer to legal codes, you would go back to the Salic law, in many cases. This law, due to its composition in Clovis's home base in northern Francia, became known as the Salic law. I probably should have said that first. And supposedly, through a further torturous genealogy, little Conrad's mother was ultimately a descendant of the Merovingians. So you've heard of Salic Law, right? Well, this is the guy that's descended from those guys. He must have a good claim to the throne. Which is all spurious and absurd, but Wipo got to write the first draft of history, so the name stuck. Now, a few other points are related to this story. Wipo is also one of our main sources for the Battle of Lechfield, and indeed, most of our sources for the early Roman German Empire were actually being written in this period, under the influence of the Conradins. So the fact that they bigged up some of the roles of some of the key figures here becomes somewhat suspicious. Notably, King Conrad I, the guy who gave the throne to Henry the Fowler, he's portrayed as this selfless, heroic figure in those early sources. And of course, Conrad the Red is this tragic Christian knight. Um, these portrayals may be true. 
Uh, however, certainly the biographers had incentives to big up their roles because these are the two big claims that the Salek or Conradin family has to the throne. They are, however, the standard story, so I felt the need to repeat them. The big final point is this. We know the link to the Trojans and the Merovingians and the Salic Franks is tenuous at best and probably made up. But who were the Conradins actually descended from? Why, the Widonids, the same family that sent Lambert out to Nantes and eventually down into Italy, and had its original land holdings here in Franconia. And the main branch of the family had stayed put. So ultimately, the Conradins are best seen as an extended branch of the Widonids, which is to say, the Gadeshi, which is awesome. End podcast footnote. The continued snubs from Henry II had already put a wedge between him and little Conrad, so it's not a huge surprise that when Conrad went looking for a bride, he turned to the one family in the empire with more bad blood with the king than his own. Which is to say he married Gisela of Swabia, daughter of Herman of Swabia, who had fought so bitterly against Henry's rule. This marriage was, however, about more than putting a stick in Henry's eye, though that wasn't unwelcome. Giselda had many fine attributes for a young man. Which is to say, she had huge tracts of land. You see, she'd been widowed. Twice. Which means that the marriage gave little Conrad effective control over huge swathes of territory in Swabia and Brunswick, that not only did Gzelda inherit in her own right as part of her dowry, but she was also holding in trust effectively for the children of those two other marriages. Now, sure, those lands might one day have to be turned over to these other men's heirs, but in the meantime, Conrad could milk them for all they were worth. Henry was, perhaps understandably, put out by this entire marriage situation and promptly exiled Conrad, supposedly because the happy couple were too closely related under church law. But honestly, when did that ever stop a European noble? Seriously, remember this when I get to talk about that marriage at the end of the episode. You'll know it when we get to it. That marriage. Anyway, they reconciled before Henry died, by which time little Conrad was not so little anymore. When Henry died in 1024, Conrad was a powerful young man, rich beyond almost anyone in the kingdom, extremely well-connected politically, hungry for advancement, and oh yeah, he also had a son already with Giselda, so we wouldn't just be back here in this inheritance situation in a few years. You know, that matters to anybody. So this made a complicated situation in the Diet a little easier when the magnates met to discuss succession. No one had a really great claim to the throne, but ultimately only the Conradins had the wealth, popularity, connections, and power to make a serious claim. Indeed, the only other serious candidate was another Conrad, Conrad's younger cousin, also named Conrad. For crying out loud, the succession vote was not initially unanimous, which was not ideal. Most clerics and nobles rallied behind our main Conrad, but a few important people voted for the other one. But once it was clear that our Conrad was going to win, the other one stepped aside, probably in return for a cash payment. Still, the unanimous consent needed by medieval kings had still not been realized, so Conrad and Giselda went on a tour, visiting and gaining the submissions of various wavering regions. Podcast footnote. The best story, undoubtedly, from this period comes from the coronation. Archbishop Aribo of Mainz had been the first to vote for the now King Conrad and was rewarded with enough positions to make him effectively the second most powerful man in Europe. And indeed, he, as the Archbishop of Mainz, was entitled to do the coronation. However, he refused to crown Giselda as queen due to the consanguinity issue raised by Henry II. Enter Archbishop Pilgrim of Cologne. 
Pilgrim had voted against King Conrad in the election, and now was regretting his lack of positions. I mean, his lack of wisdom in seeing the greatness of our Conrad. So when it was clear that there were some difficulties with the coronation procedure, Pilgrim materialized out of the woodwork and performed the coronation of Giselda, while Aribo presumably puffed and fumed somewhere nearby. End podcast footnote. Despite all the touring and submitting, not everyone was reconciled to the new king of the German Roman Empire. In Germany, Conrad's stepson, Ernest II of Swabia, made common cause with Welf II of Swabia and cousin Conrad, the other Conrad, not our Conrad, in a revolt. Apparently, cousin Conrad was not as reconciled as he had seemed, though as so often there do seem to have been personal aspects to this whole family feud, given the presence of Conrad's stepson. In any case, they were at now in revolt. Meanwhile, in Italy, basically everything was going to hell. While control of the kingdom of northern Italy had been difficult since the time of Berengar, now even control of regions by major aristocratic families was breaking down in the face of the rise of powerful city-states, which were increasingly controlled by alliances of nobles and merchants in various forms of local semi-republican frameworks. These city-states had been allies of the Etonian dynasty, but that was not necessarily the case with the Salians. Beyond coming after two majorly contested successions, conditions on the ground were changing. The Etonians had been seen as an important counterbalance against the various threats facing Italy, notably Saracen pirates, the Eastern Roman Empire, and even Magyar attacks. But the city-states, particularly the maritime powers of Venice, Pisa, Amalfi, and Genoa, had been growing in power this entire time, and were starting to feel their power. Pisa and Genoa would, in our general time period, team up to drive the Saracen pirates off of Corsica. Amalfi and Pisa would conduct major raids in North Africa and Sicily. Venice basically controlled the entire Adriatic at this point, give or take. Meanwhile, imperial forces had been discredited by defeats under Otto II and his successors, and while they had come back somewhat under Otto III and Henry II, there was no sense that they would be able to really drive off the Eastern Romans and Saracens definitively, or even provide the kind of genuine uninterrupted attention Italy just needed. Under these circumstances, the local elites of Italy started to feel that the value proposition provided by the empire was not what it had been. There were a variety of ideas about what they should look for instead, which would play out over the next century or so, but in the meantime, the result was that these local elites began to resent imperial officials supposedly representing a distant king who seemed to never be physically present. This was not that different from the desire of the German aristocrats to have the king be present as well, and to be fair to the Italians, but with the major difference that Italy was much more populous and rich, and the aristocrats in Italy were not leading a few horsemen, they were leading massive urban mobs. So it was that with Conrad II's election as the German-Roman king, not yet emperor, with his election, riots broke out across Italy against German officials, culminating in the mob in Pavia, the traditional seat of the empire in Italy. The mob in Pavia burned the imperial palace to the ground. Messengers went back and forth between the local leaders in Italy. Long story short, they were not convinced to accept Conrad, and they attempted to offer the crown to various European leaders, all of whom ultimately decided not to run afoul of the new king of the powerful German Roman Empire. This was in part because Conrad moved quickly to contain the opposition to his rule. His first move was against the revolt in Swabia, capturing his stepson, who was pardoned, obviously, and leaving a relative, who was also an archbishop, in charge of the local forces to mop up the rest of the opposition. 
Then Conrad raised a relatively large force, mostly under the command of his bishops, and headed down to Italy. And it went pretty much the same as the last few times a German king of the Romans had gone down to Italy. He was crowned as king of Italy in Milan. Pavia was besieged this time. He traveled around to a few different places. There was a dispute between his soldiers and the civilians in Ravenna, which led to some unpleasantness. Ultimately, Conrad made the innovation of recognizing that his troops might not do well in Italy in the summer and moved into the Alpine foothills for a break during certain parts of the campaign season. This was wise. Around this time, Conrad was informed that the archbishop he had left in charge of mopping up the Swabian uprising had been defeated, and so he made the interesting decision to give his stepson Ernest some men and send him up to take charge. Ernest was the same stepson who had, like, a year ago been leading these same rebels. So Ernest went north, entered Swabia, and immediately switched sides, because obviously. In any case, Conrad continued his tour of Italy, this time visiting southern Italy, and attempted to tighten up the administration through the church. He was finally crowned emperor by the Pope with Gisilda in 1027. Then he went back north, at which point everyone in Swabia abandoned Ernest and his friends, and they were forced to surrender. I'm going to skim over the rest of the domestic reign of Conrad as it is tedious in its details and only interesting in mass. In short, Conrad expanded the Etonian policy of centralizing the empire by placing his relatives in charge of the duchies. This was not a new policy, but Conrad pushed it with an increasing level of unpleasantness and impatience. A favored tactic was to try dukes on trumped-up treason charges, strip them of their major titles, and put his relatives in control. Notably, he put his 10-year-old son Henry in charge of Corinthia at one point. Any resistance to this was met with what were seen as harsh criminal penalties. Basically, the only place that didn't get this treatment was Saxony, probably because it was recognition of his rule by the remaining members of the Etonian clan in Saxony that had smoothed his rise to power. Watch this space. In terms of the church, Conrad is regarded by historians as less interested than his predecessors in theological matters and in giving church patronage. His chronicler and chaplain, Wipo, even went so far as to say that promotion of the church was of little value to the emperor. This did not prevent him from relying strongly on the established systems set up by Otto I and Henry II. As I've already mentioned, his military forces and his various domestic campaigns were largely drawn from his ecclesiastical vassals. When he traveled, he often relied on the bishops and archbishops for quote-unquote hospitality, a euphemism for having his army camp out on their lands while his court ate up all the food. At the same time, he did sponsor literary figures and chroniclers, probably as an attempt to justify his somewhat shaky right to rule. In general, I think it's fair to say that his relationship with the church was characterized by inertia. He was not a strong ally of the reformers, but he also didn't do anything to really annoy them. He was focused on consolidating his empire, and he knew how to use the church as part of that process, but he was more interested in reducing the threat of the aristocracy than in expanding the church as a counterbalance. In many ways, the foreign policies of Conrad were also more of the same. And while the cut and thrust is dramatic, we are on the clock and still have another king to go today. Suffice it to say that Conrad's foreign policy was an extension of his domestic one on most of his borders. Henry had already invaded and extracted agreements from Bohemia and Burgundy, and Conrad worked to increase his dominance over these areas. Burgundy was more fully incorporated into the empire via an invasive show of force that the local aristocracy grudgingly agreed to. In Bohemia and the Slavic territories, Conrad was able to meddle in the selection of rulers without too much difficulty. 
Hungary was too strong and remote to be easily cowed, but they were in the process of their miraculous 50 years, as they transitioned from a bunch of land pirates on horses to a functional medieval state. By now, they were largely Christianized and were engaged in the marriage politics with both the Roman German Empire and the Eastern Roman Empire, as well as Poland. Indeed, it was mostly Poland that remained the fly in the ointment. After the collapse of the friendship between the Poles and the Germans under Henry, decades of war had resulted, and they continued now. Conrad intervened in civil conflicts and made alliances with various Slavic peoples against the Poles, just as the various Polish kings meddled in Bohemian politics and made some dangerous alliances with Hungary. Again, after decades of fighting, Conrad ultimately secured a treaty that was largely favorable to the empire, while changing the border only a little. By this time, Poland had begun to collapse, meaning that this border would sort of become volatile and unstable in some ways, but on the other hand, the ability of the Poles to present an existential threat to the German Roman Empire was greatly diminished. The one really important part of all this is that Conrad himself was often off doing other things, like conquering Burgundy or meddling in Bohemia, so much of the fighting in Poland was done by his now adult son, Henry. This meant that Henry, who was the official heir, was familiar to the troops and had military experience. Conrad did make one more Italian expedition, which is, again, mostly more of the same, but has one major long-term point of interest. You'll remember that last time out, the Byzantines and their local allies had defeated a coalition of Lombard and Papal allies with a large contingent of Norman mercenaries. Henry had come down to deal with the situation, though he didn't do much but beat up a bunch of Byzantine allies. Amongst those allies was one Pandolf IV, who was dragged in chains to Germany. Conrad released Pandolf at the request of one of Conrad's southern Italian allies, Guimar of Salerno. Pandolf went straight back to Italy, where he put together an army, joined with Guimar and his ally Reinolf Drangot, a Norman mercenary, and they besieged Pandolf's old city of Capua. They took it, and Pandolf settled back in as the ruler. Then he and his allies began taking nearby territories, notably deposing one Sergius of Naples, and then Sergius hired Reinolf Drangot and was reinstalled in Naples, for which Reinolf Drangot was rewarded with control of a small, small county. Pandolf then began attacking the lands of Monte Cassino, the famous monastery. Reinolf Drango was paid off with one of these territories, and also attacking Guimar. Guimar realized he may have made a mistake, and asked both the Eastern and German Roman emperors to come down and mediate the dispute between himself and this suddenly terrifying once again Pandolf. Conrad rushed down, keen to keep the Eastern Romans out of the situation. A lot of fairly awesome skullduggery followed that I annoyingly don't have time for, but suffice it to say that Conrad besieged Capua again. Pandolf fled to the Eastern Romans, and Guimar was given control of Capua. In the process, Reinolf Drangot showed up at court, making kissy noises at Conrad's feet and asking him to confirm Reinolf's rule of the little, teeny, insignificant county of Aversa, given to him by Guimar. Conrad gave it to him and headed north. I'm sure nothing bad could come with a Norman mercenary controlling a teeny little small county in a war-torn southern Italy. While in Italy during the summer, inevitably, a plague struck the army. Malaria? Dysentery? Who knows? Anyway, they all headed back to Germany. Conrad supposedly returned safely himself, but a year later he died of gout, and I don't know if you can really die of gout? Can you get crystals in your joints so bad that it kills you? Sounds dubious, but answers on a postcard and all that. In any case, this brings us to Henry III. The succession of Henry III was one of those rarest medieval white elephants. 
a smooth succession. An adult, competent man, and, as I have said, already an experienced military commander, Henry was also personally popular with the aristocracy of the realm. While he benefited from the fear generated by the somewhat harsh treason trials of his father, Henry was seen as more reasonable, having argued the noble side against his father on several occasions in court. And in one instance, Henry only agreed to follow his father's line after being subjected to a string of insults and threats. As a result, Henry III's early reign is seen by many historians, particularly those in the German school, as sort of the high point of the old German Roman Empire. Certainly, this looked to be the case initially. While still undertaking a tour of the realm that was half victory lap, half veiled threat, there is nothing in this tour half as threatening as the Swabian uprising his father faced, and you'll recall that even that uprising was kind of small potatoes. You'll see if he can keep it up for his entire reign. This isn't to say that Henry was just sitting around twiddling his thumbs. Far from it. While the war with Poland was more or less on hold, basically due to the internal collapse of the Polish dynasty, Bohemia had not recognized Henry III's authority properly and Hungary retained some territories from the war with Conrad II that the Germans wanted back. He had to shore up his shaky hold in Burgundy. Italy was always trouble, but he needed it if he wanted to retain his connection to the church and get crowned emperor. And oh yeah, he needed a wife and an heir. To give you some idea of his schedule, I'm going to read a paragraph from Wikipedia. Now, I know, I know, I know, but hear me out. I'm not doing this because the source is great and I want you to hear the information. In fact, basically ignore the information. What the authors of the article here did is the bane of the real historian's existence. They are basically just listing a bunch of facts with little or no context or discussion. However, as you will hear, this gives a flavor of how Henry ruled and what his schedule was like. Quote, Henry spent Christmas 1041 at Strasbourg and received emissaries from the Duchy of Burgundy where he traveled during the new year to settle administrative and judicial matters. On the road near Basel, he learned of Hungarian raids into Bavaria and bestowed the duchy to a certain Henry VII, a relative of the last independent duke. At Cologne, Henry summoned the royal princes, who unanimously declared war on Hungary. After he sent a wedding delegation to Agnes of Poitou, Poitou. he set out on September 1042 and successfully subdued the western territories of Hungary. Abba fled to his eastern estates, as Henry installed a cousin as steward who was, however, quickly removed after the empire had left. After Christmas, at his chosen imperial residence, Goslar, he received foreign guests. Duke Bredislav appeared in person, a Kievan marriage embassy was dismissed, and the ambassadors of Casimir I of Poland were rejected, as the duke did not show up in person. Henry left for the French border near Ivois in order to meet King Henry I of France, most likely to discuss the impending marriage to the Princess of Aquitaine. Henry next returned to Hungary and forced Abba to recognize the Danuban territories, a former donation of Stephen I of Hungary, Po Koza Amikai. These territories had been ceded to Hungary after Conrad II's defeat of 1030. This border remained in place between Hungary and Austria until 1920. Wow, that's some bad history writing, but I think it's important that we listen to it. This is basically all the stuff we know about Henry doing in this period, which is basically a year of his reign. Given the terrible road networks and the resulting poor communications, this was just a crazy amount of travel, communication, and movement for the time. And yet all the issues being dealt with wouldn't be the kinds of things we would necessarily think of as major existential threats in a stable polity. 
Like, negotiating a diplomatic marriage is always going to be important, but we see it being given equal weight with active negotiations around the end of foreign wars. Ultimately, Henry's reign has a ton of stuff going on that isn't really that important. His reign is one that cries out for summary, so let me do this by focusing on a few subject areas. Hungary, and a little Bohemia. Lorraine, with a little Burgundy. And lastly, Italy, which will contain a bunch about his relationship with the nobility and the church. And I will wrap up with his family situation. To deal with his Eastern Front first, as I said, the collapse of the Piast dynasty had changed the chessboard in this area. For at least the last two German-Roman emperors, a major foreign policy headache had been this interminable fight with Poland, with the Poles variously allying with the Bohemians and the Hungarians. Now that Poland had dissolved into a generations-long civil war, one might expect things to settle down, as Bohemia was probably not large enough to stand against the empire by itself, and Hungary hadn't been a major power since the defeat at Lechfield. Except, as I said earlier, this is the time of the Hungarian miracle. In fact, this is the end of the miracle. During the transition from land pirates to settled nation, the German-Roman Empire had occasionally interfered with Hungarian internal politics and there had been border skirmishes, but for the most part the main action was on the border with Poland. This all changed as a result of Conrad II's defeat in 1030, in a war which the Hungarians used scorched-earth tactics to undermine a major invasion. Ultimately, it was Prince Henry who resolved this conflict via what amounted to a war of attrition that restored balance at the border, but leaving lands that had been German in the hands of the Hungarians. So it was Hungary that took on the role as senior partner in ongoing conflict with the German-Roman Empire in the East, with Bohemia as a weaker on-again-off-again ally. Henry's reign actually started with a somewhat disastrous invasion of Bohemia, as the invasion was ambushed and forced into an ignominious retreat. Shortly thereafter, Peter of Hungary was overthrown and fled to Germany. The new king, King Abba, possibly seeing the Germans as weakened due to the recent ambush, possibly a bit annoyed at them harboring a threat to his power, began raids into German territory, and with that, the biggest foreign war of Henry's reign was off and running. To help in this war, Henry allied himself with the rulers of the Kievan Rus, who attacked Hungary in the east as Henry attacked in the west. Ultimately, after much toing and froing, Henry invaded with a medium-sized but compact and unified force in 1044. Abba fielded a huge force, but the component parts were not really fully unified and were unable to properly execute maneuvers together. They were ultimately broken up and destroyed by Henry. Henry put King Peter back in place, and King Peter's loyalists eventually tracked down and killed Abba. This did not stop the war with Hungary forever. There was another war towards the end of Henry's reign, but this brought a few years of peace anyway, and for our purposes, it's just important enough to say that there was a lot of bloodshed, and the end result of which was that the border moved a little bit in Germany's favor. As for Bohemia, the Duke of Bohemia made the always wise decision to follow up a crushing defeat against a distracted enemy with conciliatory diplomacy. After completely smashing Henry's army early on, Bohemia agreed to resume its status as a vassal with almost total autonomy from the empire, sent some hostages, and everyone decided to just leave it at that. Now, on to Lorraine. Lorraine is a complex situation. I have noted this in previous episodes. This is the northern part of the old Lotharingian territory, which included Burgundy. Uh, as we've said in previous episodes, the kings of western Francia and eastern Francia have basically been trying to claim these territories from each other going back to the Treaty of Verdun. The 
current kings of France now. We are talking about the Capetian household, and particularly King Henry I, the son of Hugh Capet. They very much wanted to claim these territories as part of the Carolingian inheritance, though, of course, they weren't Carolingians anymore. Nonetheless, the territories had been a white whale for the Western Franks for some time, and, you know, it was probably a pretty popular move to try and expand in this direction. Now, the Western Franks had, as I've said, been trying to take this area over for a long time. They were mostly unsuccessful. The Eastern Franks pretty much dominated this most of the time. However, the presence of these opposing forces had allowed the local aristocrats to gain a variety of special privileges in an attempt to keep them from switching sides, a boon that sometimes worked. Podcast footnote. Okay, for God's sake, the Henry situation needs to be addressed. I refuse, I refuse now to feel bad for confusing the two Henrys in England because this era is simply absurd. In medieval and early modern Europe, there are a total of 53 kings or dukes named Henry that I've been able to find with a quick search. This includes 17 dukes of Bavaria, 7 German Roman emperors, 8 kings of England, 5 Henrys in France, 4 in Castile, 3 in Saxony and Navarre each, and 1 each in Byzantium, Pannonia, and Portugal. What the hell? And this is all leaving aside the Ottos and Conrads that we just had to think about. I will never talk ill of anyone who comes up with a weird name for their kid. For the sake of all future historians, please give your kid a unique name. This is ridiculous. End podcast footnote. Now, a related situation pertained in Burgundy, which itself had once been part of the larger Lotharingian kingdom, as I just said. However, Burgundy had a better situation in hilly terrain, and in any case, Old Count Basso had started the process of fragmenting power in this area back in the dying days of the Carolingians, and it was the Dukes of Burgundy, along with some members of the Capetian family, that had sort of put things back together in Burgundy. This left Burgundy a fairly compact, independent kingdom, but one that over time, grew to be close allies and then have very strong familial links to the German Roman Empire. I've sort of glazed over Burgundy in the last few episodes, but they've always been there just off camera in a lot of the events I've discussed. Suffice it to say that by this point, the emperors of the Roman Germans considered Burgundy to be one of their duchies, and much of the ducal clan that ruled Burgundy seems to have been loyal to their relatives in Germany. But the local aristocracy had a strong independent streak, and they wanted to reassert Burgundian independence as a, you know, independent political entity. By this time that we are looking at, there had been small civil wars or rebellions pretty much every generation or so for the last century, but which had been very quickly papered over or ended internally, and not really caused any major imperial disruptions. For whatever reason, Every emperor would come by a few times in their reign with a big army and look around threateningly, and the local dukes would say, Hey, cousin, everything's fine. <laughs> no, I'm not standing in front of a closet full of rebels. That would be crazy. <laughs> and then when the emperor moved off, everyone would come out of the closet and start glaring at each other again. So that's background. For Henry, things kicked off in 1044, when Gothello of Lorraine died. Henry viewed it as his right to determine how offices in his duchies would be disposed. This was long-standing imperial policy and had led to numerous rebellions in the past, but modern historians also criticize later medieval kings for allowing offices to become hereditary, so this is kind of a rock and a hard place kind of thing. Suffice it to say that the general imperial policy had been to reconfirm someone from a family with a claim to a territory, 
but it was their decision as to which specific person it was going to be. In this case, Lotharingia was a very large border area that gave it a lot of power and independence, and multiple previous emperors, including Conrad, had made attempts to break Lorraine up to limit the amount of power that any one person had, and Henry continued this policy, splitting the duchy up between Gothello's two sons, with the elder son, Godfrey the Bearded, getting Upper Lorraine, and Gothello II getting Lower Lorraine. Godfrey the Bearded thought the whole thing should be his, and set about forming an alliance with Henry I of France, amongst others. Henry III of German Rome first condemned Godfrey in a court proceeding, who fled and fortified his and his brother's territory, as much of it as he could take, and then Henry invaded. Henry III took a few castles, but was not able to fully conquer the duchy before his supplies ran out, and he had to retreat into Burgundy. Now, as it happened, Godfrey had a lot of contacts in Burgundy and the pro-independence nobles blew up into a rebellion as Henry entered the territory, which probably put Henry in easily the most dangerous situation he had faced so far in his reign. As it happened, however, the pro-imperial faction once again responded quickly, basically before Henry could really figure out what to do, and they put down the rebels, shoved them back in the closet, and did the expected homage to Henry before sending him on his way. Henry wasn't able to get back to Lorraine right away, as stuff was happening in Hungary, and in the meantime, Gothello II, the loyal brother, had died. So Henry gave the lower duchy to Sir Not Important Enough for Me to Name, who resumed fighting against Godfrey the Bearded. Eventually, Godfrey the Bearded surrendered, and was eventually given Upper Lorraine back. This is 1046, I think? Anyway, Godfrey the Bearded went straight back into rebellion in 1047, along with a guy named Baldwin of Flanders. Henry was able to make some headway again, but not reconquer the entire territory, before other things came up. Ultimately, however, the Pope excommunicated the two rebels, and Godfrey the Bearded surrendered again. Baldwin continued to stir up trouble, however, now in Lower Lorraine, so Henry released Godfrey the Bearded and put him in charge of Lower Lorraine. For some reason? In any case, Godfrey immediately rebelled again. Obviously. During this final rebellion, he managed to marry. You know what, we'll get back to that. The point is, he spent the last few years of Henry's reign on the run, and basically only reconciled with Henry more or less on his deathbed. We will be seeing more of Godfrey the Bearded. However, in the meantime, we need to talk about Henry III's family situation for a moment. Henry had been married during his father's reign, which was, you know, again, part of setting up the succession to be really solid. He'd been married to Gunhilda, a daughter of Canute the Great, those who know their English history will know Canute the Great. Sadly, she was killed by the same epidemic that killed Conrad II, probably, only three years after their marriage and before they could have any children. So, as Henry was stomping on fires foreign and domestic in his early reign, he was also looking for a wife. Obviously, he would be a good catch for any lady in Europe at the time, so he fielded a lot of offers. But ultimately, he settled on Agnes of Poitou. Poitou. They were somewhat too closely related for the church to be totally happy, but from a European nobility standpoint, it was pretty vanilla. They were both descended from Henry the Fowler, and that was like three seasons ago. More interestingly, she was the daughter of William of Aquitaine, one of the most rebellious subjects of Henry I of France. So this marriage annoyed Henry I of France, but it also meant that, once it was done, Henry III had a key tie into the French kingdom that could help prevent any more unpleasantness at the border. I mean, no matter how bellicose Henry I of France was, you know, sure, you could invade Lorraine again, but then my father-in-law might attack you from the rear and take Paris. 
So that was the family situation. There's not much more to talk about. They had a son. We'll get back to it. Now, pregnant pause. We need to talk about the church for a second. By this point, I've been telegraphing issues relating to how bishops are appointed for several seasons now. And for the last few kings, the main substance of this has been that there haven't been issues. No one made a fuss. We will go more into the ideological side of this in the next series of episodes, but suffice it to say here that as long as the empire was flooding the church with cash and prizes, imperial suggestions as to who should be the next abbot or bishop were generally cheerfully accepted, to the point that the clergy would often come to the emperor and just ask for their input as due course. Eventually, it was just assumed that amongst the emperor's duties was to actively pick and appoint people for these positions. Beyond the let's say, material aspects of these decisions, the fact is that the empire's needs at this time aligned with the needs of the church. The church was in the midst of a great grassroots reform program, about which I will talk more later, but whose main goal was to root out corruption and put in place competent, well-educated men to oversee and administer the church, and who would enforce religious law at a time when theologians feared that religious law was not properly being seen to. As it happened, the emperor's also needed well-educated, competent administrators who would enforce imperial laws and who were resistant to corruption by local aristocrats. So again, their needs aligned. So not only was this an alliance based on material goods, it was also an alliance of shared ideological interests. Of course, many of the emperors were also devout and religious men, as was Henry III, as it happens. But even when men like Conrad were on the throne, even if they didn't install the best theologians, they would undoubtedly invest some very good, incorruptible administrators to these high religious offices. And for the church reformers, that was basically an acceptable compromise at this point. Now, who were these people, and where did they come from? Over time, a clear conduit had developed for these appointments. Under the Etonians, it was almost always Etonian relatives who made their way into the life of a good cleric, and then eventually, oh, would you look at that, into high church offices. But the disruptions of the change to the Salian House had seen this process become a little bit more institutionalized in a peculiar way. Possibly because the pool of relatives had become confused by the change, simultaneously too large if you included all the Etonian relatives, but too small if you stuck to the Salian relatives. The key feature became that the family chapel of the estate of Goslar in Lower Saxony was where you got your clerics. Now, this is going to develop more over time, but let me explain. The Salian kings, just like the Etonians, had no real capital. They practiced peripatetic kingship, as we've talked about, and they did not stay in any one place for very long. But Saxony was an important place, strategically, politically, and emotionally. And Goslar had become sort of the main Salian estate in Saxony. Special links to this place had developed by the time of Henry III, and notably that the chapel of the family estate served as de facto the main home base to the clergy in the entourage of the emperors, which meant that clerics who ended up appointed to the chapel were figures who had the king's ear and trust. This would become a bigger issue for his son, but for Henry III, his personal retinue of clerics was where he got the people for his church appointments. The other key thing to say about this is that imperial appointment of bishops was less common south of the Alps, simply because everything was less easy in Italy. In many cities, elections to bishop were not only still actual elections, they were actively contested. This is not to say that the elections followed anything like modern standards for institutional fairness, rather that the early aristocratic factions in the cities 
had incentives to compete to get their candidates into these positions, and did so violently. Now, they had incentives to compete for these elections because, as we said way back in our episode about warrior popes with Steve Guerra, bishops had actual political authority in many cities at this time. Sadly, this did not make the results of the elections any less corrupt than, you might say, the process north of the Alps was, as we saw in that same Warrior Bishops episode, in addition to the episodes about the Theophylact ladies. In fact, it's pretty much consensus among historians that, whatever the church regulations said, it's very much the imposition of bishops and popes by pious emperors using military force to subvert the electoral process that allowed the Cluniac reformers to get anywhere in Italy. So while church regulations said that the proper way to elect a bishop was to have this very sober election with the people and the clergy together considering this, whatever that means, in Germany, they were basically just being picked. Whereas in Italy, basically street gangs were fighting it out to pick who the next bishop was going to be. Between those two, it was the German model that was actually producing more reformers who wanted a non-corrupt system for the church. But if you looked at canon law, it would look like the Italian system was more in line with what was written down. So watch that space. In any case, it's very clear that the imposition of bishops and popes by these emperors was very important to pushing change through in Italy, but the progresses of these emperors in Italy were relatively infrequent. Despite the peripatetic nature of Germanic kingship, they definitely had a home territory, and that territory was the German circuit. Italy, like Burgundy, Bohemia, and other areas on the fringes of the empire, would be visited more intermittently when a perceived need arose. Granted, the stays in the Italian circuit were sometimes very long, but that was only when things were so consolidated at home that the emperor could afford to ignore them for a while. More commonly, the emperors would pop down to Italy, disperse some revels, appoint a handful of bishops, meet or replace the pope, hold a court or a council, bash around in southern Italy for a bit, and then run back north, at which point the rebels would come out of the hills and everyone would mostly go back to what they were doing before. To combat this situation, the emperors had gradually come to rely on a sort of special administrative system, whereby they made one aristocrat in Italy into their main representative, along with a few policy experts, usually members of the clergy, who would pop down somewhat regularly to check on things. Usually these were actually bishops who were appointed to Italian sees, but would spend most of their time up in Germany. I'm sure that helped. Now, the aristocrat who ruled in Italy was usually little more than a local strongman, who, in the emperor's name, amassed huge amounts of local power, which they used to get rich. I mean, push forward the emperor's agenda. I mean, get rich while pushing forward the emperor's agenda when it suited them. Um, basically, for many of the emperors we've talked about, all they wanted was everybody to acknowledge that the emperor was supposedly in charge, and then they'd leave them alone, at which point they'd all go back to doing whatever they wanted and fighting each other. That said, this was all what was mostly happening in the countryside. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, the city-states had been gradually gaining power and were starting to get cranky about outside interference. None more so than Milan, which to be fair was always kind of a mess, but now it's time for us to talk about Milan. As anyone from Milan will tell you at length, Milan is a special place. It was particularly interesting in the Middle Ages, but I've been glossing over it for most of the run of this show because of how unbelievably complicated the place is. But unfortunately, I think now we need to deal with it. Basically, every trend in Italy that I have described in this show lodged itself in Milan without ever quite leaving when new trends came along. So, Milan was a very important Roman city, being the capital for a little while towards the end. 
and its archbishop had a great reputation and power as a result of the city's importance, and because Ambrose of Milan became one of the main theologians of the early Middle Ages slash late antiquity. Like many cities in Italy, the archbishop came to control the city government functions after the fall of the empire, but a landed noble class residing in the city also persisted and gained some major political influence and power as well. Factions of nobles would battle for influence with the bishop, and whenever a bishop died, there was inevitably a fight over the appointment, and this has come up in our story several times. But as time went on and trade revived, merchants also came into prominence, and they wanted power and influence as well. They tended to argue for a kind of written agreement, what we might call a constitutional-type arrangement, to direct how the commune, or city, would be ruled in a more systematic and inclusive way, so that they could share power with the nobles and the bishop. This group was often generally called the communards, since they were interested in the government of the commune. Though it's worth saying that the Venn diagram of merchants and communards was not exactly a perfect circle. Finally, as the Cluniac reforms spread throughout Europe, a particularly emphatic and fanatical strain of that movement called the Patria took hold in Milan, advocating for the enforcement of clerical celibacy, the end of simony, and the wholesale reform of the city's religious life. This was enthusiastically supported by the common people and some members of the lower clergy, while the main power structure of the church in the city, who benefited from the status quo, were very, very, very unhappy. So to review... In Milan, we have nobles, merchants, clerics, and commoners, and all these groups are themselves split into two or more factions that are fighting for influence, power, and or ideology. So by my math, that's around eight major factions. Give or take. These factions would recombine into coalitions and interest groups based on anything that happened inside or outside the city. And of course, things always really kicked off when a bishop died, when everyone would scramble to get their guy up the oily pole. And if they weren't happy with the result, they could always murder the guy who won or have an insurrection and expel him from the city. There were often multiple archbishops, and basically every political or religious authority who had anything to do with northern Italy over the entire run of this show has had to deal with this situation at least once. Things in Rome were not much better. I'm going to leave a full explanation of why for a later episode. But for now, suffice it to say that, as Henry III was busy making his celebratory tour of Germany, Hungary, and Lorraine, there were three popes in Rome, with two supported by out-and-out -out street gangs, while the third was an anti-corruption reformer, but one who had bribed his way into being elected in an attempt to have the ends justify the means. One of the major factions involved in this was the Crescenti family, whom I mentioned in the last episode. Basically, they had been major noble strongmen in Rome going back to Otto I, and the Etonians had variously put them down or worked with them. Otto III had worked with Crescentius, who ended up controlling power in a huge swath of central Italy, but upon Otto III's death, the Crescenti smelled an opportunity and attempted to assert their independent rule over central Italy. This was sort of put paid to by a combination of Henry II, bringing down a very large army, and the rising Eastern Roman Empire in southern Italy threatening their power from that direction. So they were humbled by this and were no longer threatening anyone outside of Rome, but within Rome there was still a power to be contended with. The other major aristocratic faction in Rome is often called the Tusculum at this point, but they're basically our old friends the Theophylact family, who were still bopping around a century later. Morosio would be so proud. With the crushing of the Crescenti as a regional power in the countryside, there was a power vacuum. And so it was that in the reign of Henry II, the Canossa family came into prominence. By supporting the emperor against his Italian opponents, 
this mid-ranking aristocratic family from Tuscany was given rewards, notably the land of all the opponents of Henry II in Tuscany. They had continued to side with the German Roman emperors during the reign of Conrad II, and by the time of Henry III, they were effectively the emperor's regents in Italy, and undoubtedly the most powerful family in the region. Despite their being extremely powerful and able to push imperial interests to some extent, they could only do so much to contain the chaos in northern Italy, and definitely did not have the gravitas or power to resolve the issues in Milan or Rome, let alone stabilize the imperial border with the Eastern Roman Empire. So when issues such as those in Milan or the three popes came up, the emperor really was needed. So it was in 1046 that Henry III came down with a massive army and set about setting things right as he saw it. He picked one of the two archbishops to rule in Milan. He stomped on the possessions of some of the Roman aristocratic factions, and then booted out the three popes before picking a new one, who crowned Agnes and himself as emperor and empress. He went down to southern Italy and recognized some conquests, reversed some others, and then, in 1047, he headed home. If all of this sounds very familiar, yes, every emperor we've talked about since Otto I has done similar things. But these moves will be important for Henry IV, and to understand why, we need to go into the details a little bit more this time. Taking it from the top, in Milan, Henry III's ally, Archbishop Aribert, had recently died. There were several candidates for the job, of course, but the quote-unquote people of Milan had elected one Guido de Valete. This election happened over the objections of the nobles. Henry III picked the guy who seemed like the most popular candidate, ensured he was installed as archbishop, and moved on. Problem solved, right? Well, it turns out that Guido had won the vote by bribing a ton of people to support him. So most of the nobles hated him, but also the anti-corruption patria hated him too. His election seems to have been based on support from the merchants, but then once he was in place, he violated one of the agreements that had sought to limit the bishop's powers and would have functioned as a constitution of sorts for the city. So that annoyed the communards, who were, again, mostly of the merchant classes, and so basically he'd alienated everybody, and Milan just immediately collapsed into constant civil protest and communal violence after Henry marched away. Moving on to Rome, Henry III decided he really needed to be careful and fully consider the cases being presented by the three popes. He was, after all, a devout man, and he took this seriously. So he convened his court in Pavia to hear their cases. He had his troops go and bring the popes in, along with witnesses, and then he and his circle publicly sat in judgment of the popes. He found that all of them were corrupted, which, you know, is fair enough, and the entire process needed to be redone properly. Henry then moved with his army into Rome and convened a synod to redo the papal election, and he suggested to that synod that one Suiger von Morselben, Bishop of Bamberg, might be considered as a good candidate. He was, again, one of these chaplains of the emperor. He was duly elected as Pope Clement II, and there was much rejoicing. I will elaborate more on this in the papal episodes, but while everyone in the streets was cheering and looking nervously at the imperial troops in their midst, a lot of people in Rome felt rather hard done by in this case. While other emperors had certainly removed bad popes, it was always done via a church synod. Granted, it was a synod called by the emperor and guarded by imperial troops with a tendency to get really stabby if startled, but it was a synod nonetheless. But Henry had basically just held an imperial judicial tribunal to try these three popes. Instead of a room full of bishops, Henry III had personally sat in judgment of the popes. So even though no one really had anything bad to say about Clement II, he seemed like a pretty decent guy, a reformer but not off the rails, you know, all around nothing to complain about, 
The supporters of each of the other candidates felt very annoyed by this outcome, which meant that the two strongest aristocratic factions and the reformers in the clergy of Rome were just kind of annoyed. They couldn't do anything about it, what with all the stabby troops, but it was definitely there. However, it was in southern Italy, where Henry definitely did his best impression of a bull in a china shop. I mentioned before how Conrad II had released Pandulf IV from prison, at which point he's headed down to southern Italy, hired a bunch of Norman mercenaries, and started just attacking everyone, including Conrad's major allies. Well, Henry basically kept that ball rolling. Everyone had just gotten it together to wipe this guy out again, with the Normans switching sides to help, when in rolls Henry. Henry confirmed the new lands taken by the Norman mercenaries, but put Pandulf back in charge of Capua for some reason, which everyone had just taken from him. I don't know what hold Pandulf had on these German emperors, and there's, yeah, a big helping of hindsight here, but what the heck? It was super unpopular with the locals, basically all of them, and, like, this guy clearly had a history. I don't know why Henry couldn't take a hint or get a clue here. In any case, having driven through Italy like a tourist off-roading in a bird sanctuary, Henry went home. And things surprisingly stayed fairly stable, so to give him his due, things didn't implode immediately. This stability was possibly due to the work of Boniface de Canossa, Henry's strong supporter and ally. But Clement II died not even a year later. The exact sequence of events here is a little bit unclear, but it seems like a delegation of Romans headed north to ask Henry to ahem, suggest a new pope. But meanwhile, Boniface had engineered the election of Theophylact of Rome as pope whose name will cue you in to the fact that he was not a reformist candidate. He was, in fact, one of the three popes that Henry had deposed earlier. So I'm not sure why Boniface thought this would fly. But when a new guy, Damasus II, showed up in Italy saying he was the duly selected pope from Germany and he needed some help to get to Rome, Boniface told him that Rome already had a pope, and so he should probably go back home. He did, but he returned with a sternly worded letter from Henry III, making it clear to Boniface that Damasus II was the new pope, and that Boniface was to take him to Rome. So he did. But he was not happy about it. Fortunately for Henry, Boniface had been screwing with the rights of his vassals, and one of them shot him with an arrow in 1052. Unfortunately for Henry, this left what was arguably the largest, wealthiest, and most important duchy in his empire in the hands of a child, Frederick and the actual power in the hands of his mother and regent, Beatrice. Beatrice was the daughter of one Frederick II of Upper Lorraine, and was insanely well-connected in the empire's inner circle. Like, she was so close to the imperial family that the dowager empress adopted her at one point. Now you may be wondering, since she is from Lorraine, is she related to good old Godfrey the Bearded? Well, yes, actually. Frederick II was the great-grandfather of Godfrey. Apparently that branch of the family had some early death problems and young kid stuff. Uh, in any case, this makes Beatrice Godfrey's great-grand-aunt, I believe. Small world. Now, Beatrice was in a vulnerable situation. Tuscany was rich and powerful, but it wasn't particularly well consolidated yet, and she felt the need to have a man around to at least serve as a figurehead for her regency. And so she picked Godfrey the Bearded. <laughs> This is gross, really gross on, on so many levels. Like, cousin marriage is a thing you have to make peace with if you're going to study history this much, but uh, this is a bit much. Anyway, beyond being super gross, this was a real problem for Henry III. Not because it was gross. <laughs> I mean, what's some incest between European aristocrats, am I right? 
Uh, no, the problem was that the largest and wealthiest duchy in his German Roman Empire was in the hands of a woman who had just married one of the most persistent rebels of his rule. So he headed south and managed to catch Beatrice and her daughter Matilda, but not her son Frederick or Godfrey the Bearded. However, Frederick died shortly thereafter. There is no hint at foul play, but uh, the timing was very convenient for Henry, especially combined with how his father had died. Regardless, with Godfrey on the run and no other children, Tuscany now legally belonged to Beatrice and Matilda, both of whom Henry did have in hand, and I bet Henry felt real smug about the chances of two women being able to properly manage this massive estate against his wishes. I mean, when in this story have we seen women rule a medieval European territory against the wishes of men, am I right? I mean, I mean, other than Adelaide and Theophanu. And uh, Louis II's wife and daughter? Uh, You know what, let's move on. I'm sure this isn't going to be important. And so, you know, Henry held a few courts, met with the Pope, and then headed home, where everything was on fire. There were rumors of a conspiracy, Godfrey and Baldwin were attacking again, and there was a Slavic uprising. Now, the first of these problems largely resolved itself. The conspiracy petered out when two of the principal figures died of the plague. However, there was clearly discontent. Henry moved next to Lorraine, where he dispersed Godfrey and Baldwin's army but did not capture them yet again. Then he met with the King of France to try and negotiate a peaceful solution to their problems. Instead, Henry of France challenged Henry III to a duel, and Henry III gloriously rode away in the dark of night. (laughs) Finally, he headed off to deal with the Slavs. But on the way, he got sick and died in 1056. Uh, yeah. Oops. As is becoming a bit of a theme, this death was very awkward. Henry III did have a son. He and Agnes had had a child six years before. So little Henry IV was only six, and so regency arrangements had to be made. Henry III survived his illness long enough to have a say in this, and he had done useful things like having his nobles swear allegiance to Henry ahead of time when he was still a baby. But I'm going to leave the details of that for the episodes on Henry IV. Let's just say here that regencies throughout history can be very tricky, and an awful lot comes down to the personalities of the people involved. Would Henry's nobles be loyal and selfless and not self-serving? Would Agnes have the tenacity and wisdom of Adelaide or Theophanu? We will see. For now, however, I think I'd need to just sum up these early Salian kings and reflect on what they mean to us going forward and, you know, sort of assess their rule. But let's start off with a podcast footnote. I've mentioned in passing that one of the first flowerings of modern history as a rational academic practice happened in Germany. I've mostly mentioned this to note the structuralist reaction to this tradition led by our hero, Mark Bloch. However, it's time to dwell on this earlier school, because as we get more and more into German history, it's these earlier folks who are actually going to constitute the main received narrative that we need to address. I've mentioned Leopold von Renke before. Leopold von Renke. And I know Andrew's tyrannical pronunciation robot will tell me if I got that wrong again. Renke. 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 Right? Du bist dumm wie Brot. Anyway, Ranke is credited as basically starting the modern practice of history, emphasizing the use of archival evidence and early documentary criticism to serve as evidence that back up the construction of written narratives to describe what happened without just making stuff up that sounds good. Despite any critiques that follow, Ranke deserves all credit for being amongst the first people to take a crack at this, 
systemizing the practice in his own published works, and passing his ideas on to new generations in Germany's increasingly influential and acclaimed university system. However, Ranke was not working in a vacuum without bias, though he probably was trying to claim that he was working without bias. However, despite attempting to limit his own biases, Ranke was not working in a vacuum. As you all probably know, Germany in the 19th century was not a happy place. Despite a growing economy building on increasing industrialization, many workers and members of the middle class felt alienated by the new forms of production. Many blamed this feeling on the political situation, with Germany being at that time a mere geographic shorthand for a collection of tiny statelets operating without central government, as Austria, France, and Prussia glared at each other across the region from their various corners. All attempts at republican reforms had been crushed by the events of the Napoleonic Wars and the subsequent failures of the revolutions of 1848. Because of this foreign interference, any rising desires for civil rights or political rights were intertwined with feelings of German nationalism that simmered angrily below the surface. You couldn't get civil rights until you got rid of all these little statelets and got these bigger powers either out of the picture or on your side. Podcast editor's footnote within a podcast footnote. So here's the deal. We assume that nationalism and civil rights are mutually exclusive, Nazis and all that. But in the 19th century, what you have to keep in mind was that this is the era of the Romantic Revolutionary. And more importantly, you have to keep in mind the model they're working from, which is the French Revolution. The French Revolution had, of course, invented the idea of la patrie, the fatherland, which, of course, was synonymous with civil rights, liberal egalitarianism, etc. So the paradox that is German nationalists being in favor of civil rights being liberals is not actually a paradox. The two go hand in hand, and it wasn't until the period that Leopold von Ranke is writing in that these had begun to be separated via Bismarck's embrace of a conservative German nationalism. This is the Kleindeutsche Lösung defeating the Großdeutsche Lösung, the small German solution defeating the large German solution, because the greater German, large German solution implied republicanism. It implied egalitarian government. It just wasn't a paradox for the people living at the time. Nationalism and liberalism went hand in hand until the invention of right-wing nationalism. End podcast editor's footnote that is still contained within the main podcast footnote. This had two important results for our purposes. One, careers in politics and the military were severely circumscribed, so young people from wealthy families sought careers in business and in academia, leading to an excess of talent in the universities. Two, German nationalists sought to find justification for their beliefs in the study of German history, with the German-Roman Empire of the Middle Ages being a topic of particular favor, as it was better documented than Germany in the ancient world, while also being a time when Germany had better luck internationally than in the contemporary era. It was also far enough in the past as to avoid any censorship issues, for the most part. So, the traditional narratives of German history were initially written in this era, and led to some guerrillas in the room that I will need to address before going forward. For now, I'm just going to focus on one major bias. These historians, writing in an era of disunity, really, really liked kings and emperors who worked on centralizing the power of the government in Germany. They also mostly happened to be Lutheran, and so they were also pretty dubious about the Catholic Church. For our purposes, this does mean we need to be a bit careful around narratives of centralization in our assessment of these kings. Historians of this era really, really liked Conrad II because he made policy decisions that emphasized the king's secular power. It is worth saying, however, that 
it is not inevitable that secular centralization is a capital G, capital T good thing. I do tend to be sympathetic to seeing things that way. Certainly, for aristocrats being subject to the kangaroo courts by the emperor, it did not feel like justice or a good thing, and their anger and fear felt by the other aristocrats had a major part in what was to come that might not have been there if Conrad had just left well enough alone. On the other hand, these aristocrats were making their living by oppressing the peasants and raiding the Slavs. It's hard to dispute that the aristocrats did, in fact, have too much power from a modern perspective. And it's worth saying that France, which ultimately managed to bring its aristocrats to heel through a different process, did have somewhat better outcomes for the people than Germany did. So, look, fair enough. I'm ultimately somewhat sympathetic, broadly speaking, to the idea that centralization was probably a good thing that could have been done. Certainly, decentralization later on did Germany no favors. However, this is an opinion that I arrive at with hindsight, and it's based on modern biases where I live in highly centralized secular state. And certainly for the people at the time, it was not clear that that was an end goal that they wanted to be working towards. So let's just be clear about our assumptions here and the limitations that those have. End podcast footnote. I think the key thing to say about Conrad and Henry is how much they did not change things. Despite coming to the throne under initially interesting circumstances, these salians basically just continued the policies of the Etonians. While not as devout as Henry II, and certainly having, you know, something of a chip on his shoulder, I guess, in terms of securing his legitimacy, Conrad II continued his policy of gradually pushing to curb the power of the aristocrats. It's not that Henry II wasn't curbing the power of the aristocrats. The difference was a matter of degree. Henry pushed so only so hard, Conrad was clearly making a point of putting people on trial so that he could actively put someone in charge when the previous occupant was not dead yet. This came in spite of them picking him to be king, so he, to a certain extent, he was biting the hand that fed him. We'll see how that turns out. He was criticized for this at the time, though more modern historians have viewed this favorably for, you know, all the reasons I've just been talking about. If domestic popularity was the epitome of good kingship, Henry III really should have been exemplary. He was personally popular as a person. He was a very religious man, even proclaiming the peace of God at one point. Granted, this would help him tamp down on the feuds between his nobles and aid in the centralization process, again, that alliance between the imperial state and the church. But it was seen as a pious act at the time. He was using the tools he had at his disposal to probably what would have been seen as the utmost of any person's ability at the time. He was seen as affable, reasonable by the nobility in terms of his not conducting kangaroo courts. He was an experienced war leader, and the church liked his piety. And yet, spoiler alert, the empire is about to enter a major, arguably terminal crisis. Without spoiling too much of that, what did these two do wrong? Well, assuming they did not have prophetic powers like Paul Atreides, nothing really. Based on the information they had at their disposal, they did very reasonable things to gradually push the process of consolidation, increase imperial stability, and maintain or expand their borders in a way that would not overextend the empire or annoy too many members of the status quo all at once. Everything they did was entirely in line with imperial precedent and seemed like a good idea at the time. Sure, they annoyed some members of the nobility and some members of the church, but they were annoyed. They weren't, like, essentially threatened. No one was bursting out in revolts, uh, except right at the end. 
But at the time of Henry's death, it really probably didn't seem like there was any major problems. In Italy, to be sure, mistakes were made, especially by Henry. That said, they were the kind of mistakes that you make when you're not from the area and you don't know the rules. It's worth noting that part of the reason Henry went into Italy in the first place was to replace the late Archbishop of Milan, who had been his advisor on Italian affairs, so he was going into a situation without his main advisor on Italian affairs. Henry was possibly not as well advised as he should have been. And while I remain pretty incredulous about his leniency towards Pandolf IV, it wasn't clear in the 1050s how terrifying and dangerous the Normans were going to be. I mean, they were just some second sons from a small duchy in northern France. Who cares if they have a country in southern Italy? Still, it's hard not to be disappointed by Henry III. Without getting into the level of condemnation that many German historians have leveled, it does seem like Henry spent much of his reign fighting very hard to achieve a whole lot of not much. Repeated expeditions into Bohemia and Hungary had met with defeat and even disaster. He seemed unable to secure Lorraine. One of the great truisms of military history is that amateurs study tactics while professionals study logistics. I suspect that, at some level, the reign of Henry III shows the limit of that cliché. Henry was consistently able to show up with relatively well-supplied and equipped armies wherever in the empire he needed it. But he never seemed to succeed at doing anything with them, not in a major way. He, he kept the empire from losing, to be sure. And there were certainly supply issues sometimes in his prosecution of sieges and in a few of his campaigns. So yeah, logistics might be an issue, but it really does seem like consistently, despite a lot of experience, Henry was just not very good at medieval warfare in the way that his predecessors were. Then again, since Otto II's defeat, the empire's military fortunes had really just not been as one-sided as they once were. So this may be a systemic problem. This is the period when castle design was improving rapidly, so it could well be that fortifications had simply improved enough to turn the raw numerical power of, of the German-Roman imperial military into a neutralized force. In general, Henry was a strong king who had a firm hand on his nobles and on the church, but who did not make any major innovations. It's hard to say what combination of policies could have prevented what was to come, certainly in terms of the kinds of things that a medieval king would have considered. Still, his reign was one where the cracks were growing beneath the surface, hidden by personal loyalty to a generally considered good king, a fear of his military, and simple inertia. But to Henry, undoubtedly, it seemed like he left an empire that had some problems, to be sure, but which was coherent and consolidated. Henry had every reason to think he had done the right things to the best of his ability, and it should be said that a lot of what was to come was due to him dying young, and that's not his fault. To assess whether or why he was wrong with what he did requires us to compile more information. So next time we're going to wind the clock back to the time of Otto I and start a speedrun of papal history. This will get us a bit more in-depth in Italian politics, watch the development of the factions in the city, and get a real clear picture of what role the Roman-German emperors had come to play in this arena. This will probably take two or three episodes, I hope, and then I will sum all this up and begin the reign of Henry IV and Pope Gregory VII properly. There will also be a potiversary in there somewhere, so basically, strap in. It's going to be good. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. 
It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 